0: Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Why are you looking for me? Mark 1 is where you want to be if you've got your Bible with you, and I hope you do. I've only had one Sunday school teacher in my whole life long when I was a young adult. And he used to tell us, make sure you bring your Bible to class. Otherwise, how do you know if I'm lying to you? Well, it's not quite that drastic in my case. I wouldn't intentionally lie to you. But you want to bring your Bible. And you want to to follow right along. Mark 1 is where we'll be. Why are you looking for me? A lot of people are talking about Jesus today. He is a fairly popular topic. I haven't done it, but I'm guessing if you Googled his his name, there'd be quite a few places come up. A lot of people are talking about Jesus today. He is the subject of many, many books and films, even recently. He is the topic of university courses across the nation. He is the focal point of study in seminaries. There are crosses, there are classes, there's Christmas, and it's all about Jesus, right? A lot of people talking about Jesus. You would think you would think that 2,000 years might have dulled that interest in him, would have dried up a little bit, but the exact opposite is true. A lot of people are talking about Jesus. That uh, focus on Him goes back a long, long way. That's where Mark chapter 1 comes in. Jesus uh, has done some remarkable things already in the opening chapters of this, the shortest gospel. We call it the gospel of Mark, but Mark was really just the secretary. Mark was what we call an amanuensis. He just jotted things down that he was told. And he was told this story by none other than an eyewitness, Simon Peter, who figures into the cast of characters in the story today. So this is the account of an eyewitness, Simon Peter. And he has told us that early on, Jesus has just burst on the scene publicly. He's been a private citizen up to that point, a pretty good carpenter in Nazareth. But now he's on the road. He's gone to a city, a fairly good-sized city called Capernaum. And there on Capernaum, he had gone into the synagogue, the house of study for every Jewish person. He had gone into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and had amazed them by the things he had taught. Apparently, he was the guest rabbi that day. And he had blown them away with the things he had said. And then to put icing on what he had done, There's a dramatic healing when a man jumps to his feet and interrupts everything that's going on, and he's demon-possessed. That's what we call it. We don't quite know what that means. He's demonized. We know that. He's troubled upon. He's set upon by an unclean spirit. An ugly spirit has taken hold of him to the point that the unclean spirit causes him to burst into the synagogue, screaming and yelling and interrupting and crying out, and Jesus stops him. By delivering the man. He rebuked the spirit, be quiet. And the spirit came out at his command. The man falls on the ground in convulsions as the spirit is leaving him. And cries out one last time in a loud voice. And then he's free. And all of the people you would be if you were there. They're amazed you would be getting your phone out to take a picture of it all. They were all amazed. And then they begin saying amongst themselves, all of the people who witnessed what had just happened, the teaching and the deliverance, what in the world just happened? What is this? It's a new teaching that we're hearing because he has an authority that we have never heard before. And the reason Jesus can teach with authority is he is the author. That's why he knows what he's talking about. And it's not lost on them. He teaches with authority, and he can even make the unclean spirits obey him. Who is this? Well, the news goes everywhere about him in the whole area. And he decides to go and have a little rest time. And so he invites himself to the home of one of his men, two of his men, actually, brothers, Simon and Andrew. Simon and Andrew are early followers. We will know Simon as Simon Peter later on. But Simon and Andrew's home is in Capernaum, and and Jesus does what Jesus always does. Let me warn you, if you're a new follower of Christ or you've never started following Him, you already know this if you walk with Him for a while, that when Jesus comes into your life and He begins to live inside of you, your stuff becomes His stuff. He moves in that way. On more than a few occasions, we see him in the Gospels inviting himself to lunch at somebody's house. Coming to your house today for lunch, for dinner. Be ready. I'll be there at 6. Have what I like. And he does that with Simon Peter's house. There are a number of times throughout the story that Simon Peter will tell that he will clue us in and say, he was back at my house again. And this is one of them. He goes into Simon and Andrew's house Simon Peter's mother-in-law is very sick with a high fever. It's uncontrollable. And so they say, we're sorry, Jesus, but we can't accommodate you today because mom is sick. She's in the front room laying in bed. And Jesus comes up to her and raises her up, just takes her by the hand. And just that touch, the fever leaves. She assumes the right temperature and she's fine again to the point that she serves them. They... They're hungry, so she cooks up dinner and serves them. Well, word of that and word of his teaching and word of the deliverance with the demoniac, it, it spreads like wildfire in that town of Capernaum. And by evening time, Jesus, our and our day, has been squashed because as the sun is setting and people are getting off work, they're running to that house where Jesus is. And they pack tightly around it. And they're bringing their relatives and their friends that are sick with various kinds of illnesses and incurables and diseases and even demonic possessions because he's got a reputation now. In fact, it says the whole city had gathered at the door. Well, even if a few people stayed home, there's a bunch of people there. And they're after Jesus for healing and he accommodates and he heals everybody, doesn't matter what the disease Doesn't matter how long-lasting, how chronic, He heals everybody. And He casts out the demons no matter how strong and no matter how ugly and no matter how long they've been entrenched, they're no match for Him. And everybody goes away satisfied. But Jesus is tired. He is spent. We know from a later healing when a woman will touch the hem of His garment and it will cause something to go out from Him, He will notice it even though He doesn't intentionally heal her. We know that it depletes Jesus when he has to have a day like this. And so they go looking for him early in the morning only to find that he's not there. He's not in the house. He's not in the backyard. He's not in the shed. They can't find him. He has intentionally fled the scene. For his own well being, spiritually and emotionally and psychologically, he needs to recharge. And so he has gone off that night sometime. He left. And he found a secluded place, a lonely place, a faraway place. And it says he prays there. Now you need to understand that when Jesus is praying, prayer for him is not passive, it is not downtime, it is not loaf time, it is not quiet time. In fact, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus would pray with loud cries. He was loud. I had a member of our church stop by on the way. They had to go out of town today, some relative stuff, but they wanted to just check in. And so they got here early this morning when I was doing a few things. And and they said, well, I came by hoping that you would be praying and I could just pray with you. And I said, you don't want to do that. Because when it's time for me to pray by myself, it's very loud and nobody wants to pray with me. Nobody. Jesus prayed with loud prayer. It was not a passive thing to Jesus. What He's doing in this time of prayer, this, this, this alone time, is He's replenishing the power of God. It's been depleted. And He's readjusting to the will of God just to make sure He's on track for the day. And, and He's recreating life. As he prays. And all of those things can happen when you pray too, when you really pray. And so they search for him and they finally find him. And you kind of get the feeling, the way the story is unfolding, that he's not real happy to be found. And they come up to him, and, and Simon Peter is the spokesman for all. He says, Everybody is looking for you. Almost like a rebuke to him. How could you be so selfish, Jesus, to take time off to pray when there are people to be healed and demons to be driven off? Everyone is looking for you. Jesus doesn't seem real pleased that everyone has now found him. In fact, he, he says, you know, I, I think it's time to leave and do something else for a while everyone is looking for you. You know, that's an experience that has dogged him pretty much his whole life. He's 30-something, early 30s at this point, but when he was 12 years old, it at least started then. At that point, Jesus, 12 years old, he Had been in the great city of Jerusalem for feast time with his family and neighbors and extended family, and they had traveled there in caravan. And when the feast was over, they traveled back home for safety in a caravan. But about a day out, mom and dad wondered where boy Jesus was. Now, before you begin to accuse Mary and Joseph of bad parenting skills, why don't you watch your kid? The problem might have been that he was 12 years old. That would have been his bar mitzvah year at the temple, which meant that he's no longer a a child. And so mom is not the one now who will be primarily responsible for him. He's going to begin to learn the trade, and dad will take him under his wing now. He's 12. He's not a boy anymore. He's considered a young man. And so maybe when mom and dad left, this is the first time they've got a bar mitzvah son. And so mom thinks dad's got him and dad thinks mom's got him. Any parents ever make that mistake? I've left a kid at home a couple times thinking that. So boy, Jesus is nowhere to be found and they beeline back to Jerusalem in a panic in a near terror, looking all over the city. And they you know the story. They find him in the temple, and he's the center of attention as all of the learned men, all of the scholars, all of the, 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 the experts in the Hebrew Scriptures, all of the doctors of the law have gathered around this boy who not only seems to have extraordinary knowledge of the things of God and Scripture, but he asks the most piercing question. When his mom and dad come on the scene, it's another question from him as they begin to scold him. We've looked everywhere for you. And he says, why are you looking for me? Boy, Jesus, why are you looking for me? So since the age of 12 and maybe before, he's been dogged with this, with people looking for him all the time. So he asks the question, why are you looking? Why are you looking for me? It's one of his 295 that he will ask. And I want you to let him ask you that question today. Why are you looking for me? Why are you? Put the emphasis there. Why are you looking for him? Now, there are an awful lot of answers. And I think some of those answers are obvious and it's Some of those reasons that people are looking that he seems to be annoyed. Part of it is too many are just looking. Just looking, that's all. Don't want to get too entangled with him, but I sure would like to get a good look. In in this account of this story, the way Mark records it from Simon Peter, the eyewitness and the spokesman, Simon Peter and his companions are kind of like ambassadors for who knows how many people, the whole city, who's really looking for him. But it's Simon Peter and a few chosen friends who approach Jesus and and they say to him, everyone is looking for you. But they're doing it on the behalf of others, many others. When Luke tells the story, he says that Jesus in this secluded place is found out by the crowds, They're running, looking, and it's a crowd that comes to him, a large crowd that comes searching for him and asks the question or makes the statement, everyone is looking for you. And and though his hideout was secluded and he thought it was secure, they found him. There are people that are just looking, though. You, You can't help but hear how annoyed he is. Why are you looking for me? This has been happening since I was 12. I I can almost hear a sigh coming out of him. Why are you looking for me this time? Because some people are just looking. Everyone is looking, but some are just looking. And and that's all that many people want is just to look, and that annoys him. He doesn't seem to care for that. There's, um, There's a lot to see. Admittedly, there's a lot in Jesus that you could marvel over. There are a lot of reasons you could be like this crowd, or later on you could be like wee little Zacchaeus, little short fellow who just wanted to see Jesus, and he's so puny that he's got to climb up in a tree to see Him, but all he wanted was to see Him. He got a lot more than an eyeful. But you can understand why a lot of people would want to look because there's a lot to see in Jesus and there's an awful lot that you could marvel about from a safe distance in Jesus. You, You could look at his example. You could be intrigued by his example. And you could look at how he dealt with people. You could look at how he lived and be amazed by it. He's an exemplary life. Somebody has said he's the greatest life that's ever lived. And you could look at that life be marveled by that life. He, he's nobler than the noblest of Romans, and he is more eloquent than the cleverest of the Greeks. There's a lot to see in Jesus. You can look at his wisdom. He, he had such wisdom, and this is one of the things the crowds wanted to look at him for and witness, is he had so much wisdom. And he had such an economy of words, he didn't say a lot, but what he said, he had so much wisdom that the the professional list makers and the troublemakers and the the religious authorities that are so obnoxious, they would come to him and try and trip him up and in a simple sentence he would hogtie them and leave them bleeding on the ground. The crowds loved it. His wisdom was incredible. You could marvel at his understanding. He he knew the hearts of people. He's a master psychologist. He knows what's in people. And he demonstrates that time and again. You could look at that for a long time. It's amazing. You could look at his patience. You, You could look at his love, a deep love that he had for the poor and for the hurting. You could look at his love for sinners, especially. He didn't hang with good people. He loved sinners. He was a friend of sinners. You could marvel at that. Many have. You could look at his preferential treatment of children. Children were not second and third class to him. They were first class. In fact, he said, you better become like a child, you not-headed adults. He so preferred children. He loved children. You can marvel at that, and many have. You, you could marvel and wonder at how, in his day, he elevated the place of women. Again, not second and third class to him. Some of his greatest supporters, some of his greatest admirers, some of his greatest success stories, some of the people he poured more life into were the ladies. And in the attention he gave him, Jesus Christ elevates the place of women in a way that nobody else ever has. And you could could look at that. The way he talked to despised minorities, it could go on and on. The things in Jesus that you could marvel at and look at for days on end. You, You can be stunned by the beauty of his word. Do you realize there are people that study His Word life long. They make a career of, of digesting His Word and tearing into His Word, and they're captivated by His Word, but they don't even believe God exists. But it's His words are incredible. Greater than anything penned by a Shakespeare are the words of Jesus Christ. And you can marvel at those and look at those and study those. You can thrill at the story of God became man, an unbelievable story. You can can be struck by the unfairness of his last few hours and what happened on the cross. And you can weep even as you look upon that. The greatest life ever lived. You can do all that and still be just looking. Just looking. You know what I'm talking about. You've done it. You ever go into a store And you're walking the aisles and you're looking at the merchandise and let's say you don't have a dime in your pocket, not two nickels to rub together. You don't have any money. Or or let's say you're in the store because you want to look at a product but you're going to buy it off of Amazon. But I want to see it in person. Don't tell me you haven't done that. Or, Or maybe you're just there killing time. You're just going through the store looking. And the sales clerk sees your eager eye. And what does he or she say? Is there anything I can help you with? You can almost hear the hope in their voice. Please, let me sell you something. And what do you say by way of deflecting because you don't have money or you're Amazon shopping or you're just killing time? What do you say? No thanks. Just looking. And when we say just looking, that means not buying, right? Just looking. Not buying. And there are many people that are just looking at Jesus Christ. They're not buying. There's a lot to look at, but they're just looking. There's a recent author that says about Jesus that he has a lot of fans, but he has very few followers. Jesus is not interested in fans. He's not interested in believers. Jesus is interested in followers. He's interested in disciples. He's not interested in lookers. He's, again, not even interested in believers. The enemy believes. He's interested in followers. How do you know you're a follower? The Word says you know you are a disciple because you make other disciples you are taking some part of your life to invest it in another life that needs Jesus Christ like you did. And you're bringing them along to the point that at some point, some day, they will be able to make disciples too. That's how you know you're a follower. You're making followers, see? Everything else is just a looker. Or if you prefer a believer... But he gets annoyed with lookers, his followers that he's after, disciples. And that involves radical change, to be a follower of Jesus, not just a looker. That involves a radical life change because you will end up going, if you're a follower, think about the word, you'll end up going where he goes and seeing what he sees. You see? And that will change everything. When you begin to see things through the eyes of Christ... Changes everything. That's a follower. That's what he's looking for. And that's why we see him. (sighs) Everyone is looking for you. Just looking, though. Not buying. Not buying. So I think the problem is, for him, that too many are just looking. I think another problem for him is too many are looking for the wrong thing. You know, let me explain it this way. I have decided that I have made major mistakes in ministry. And let me tell you a recurring major mistake that I've made, and I hope not to make it anymore, although I think I might. It's been this. Somebody will come with a problem. I think by nature I'm a problem solver. I like to solve problems. I like to see things come to a conclusion. This last week, the last four weeks, we've been redoing floor and counter and backsplash and everything, and I did some of it myself, and and I saved for myself to redo all the plumbing, the trap and everything under the kitchen sink, the supply lines, everything, the, the disposal, all that stuff, hook it all up. I wanted to do that myself. Johnny wanted to help me. I wouldn't let him help me. I let Johnny work with the oven because that's live electricity, and it would be a sad thing if Johnny would get shocked, but it wouldn't really bother me as much as if I got shocked. So he did that, and I did the plumbing because I wanted to solve the problem. I like to solve problems. I think that's how I made these mistakes. Somebody will come with a problem, and and it can run the gamut. Uh, Their kid is in jail, or they're headed to jail. Or their kid is going haywire and they need somebody to talk to them. Or or they need a car. Or they need food. Or they need clothing. Or or they need to get married. Or they need to have a funeral done in their family. Or they need something emotionally because they're a wreck for some reason or another. And I want to solve that problem. They have a life-controlling situation. And it can be solved. And so I want to solve that problem. And I've done that. The reason I've done it is because I feel like that's what Christ would want me to do, help them. But here's my mistake. My mistake was not in my motive. My mistake was in assuming that they were as interested in following Christ as I was. In most cases, they aren't. They're interested in getting out of jail. They're interested in getting well again. They're interested in getting the marriage ceremony taken care of. They're interested in the life problem being solved. But interested in Jesus, not so much. That has been my mistake. It's been my mistake. What I should have been saying all along was, yes, I will help you guys get through your marriage process. Yes, I will help you find a car. Yes, I will make sure you have food. But... I do not have a magic wand. Jesus is the only one that can really solve your problems. And until you are willing to submit to him as your Lord and master of your life, you are always going to be a mess. That's what I should have been doing. That if you're not willing to follow Jesus, I'm really not prepared to put a Band-Aid on it. That's what I should have been doing. We'll see if I've got the strength to do that from here on out. But there are a lot of people that are looking for Jesus for all the wrong things. They want a problem solved. They want a marriage put back together. They want a kid to behave. They want enough money at the end of the month. They want a problem solved, but they're not willing to spend time or give themselves to the problem solver. You see? They're looking for the wrong thing. They're looking at Jesus as somebody who can do a few tricks for them. And the crowds were like that. These crowds had been fed by Him. They had been healed by Him. They had been made to feel good, better than they'd ever felt in their life by Him. They had listened to Him. But they weren't really interested in Him. That's all they wanted was stuff from Him. And so again, they come looking. Everyone is looking for you because they want you to do something. There's a different way to look at Jesus. If you are looking for Christ, truly looking for Christ, not for the tricks He can perform, not for the miracles that only He can do, not for the jams He can get you out of. If you are truly looking for Jesus Christ to know Him, as Paul would say, Oh, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, but I am willing, if I've got to know Him, I'm willing to know Him even in the the fellowship of His greatest suffering. I'll take Him either way as long as I know Him. If you're looking for Christ that way, he says, the one who seeks me will find me if he seeks me with all of his heart. And if you come looking for me, he says, and you're really looking for me, there is no way I will set you aside. You get priority treatment. That's what he says. If that's why you're looking for him, if that's why you're looking for him. You know the little mini story Jesus told, The Pearl of Great Price? Unfortunately, the Mormons have co-opted that title and they use it for one of their spurious documents. I've read it. Uh, it's comical, actually, in the things it says. But there's a real pearl of great price that doesn't come out of Utah comes from the heart of Jesus, and he tells the story, the pearl of great price. And this guy is probably cutting across a field, not his field. So I guess you could say he's trespassing. And he's kicking at things, I guess, because he kicks up a clod, and under it, in some kind of container, I can only imagine, maybe a lockbox or a little treasure chest, there is a pearl of immense value. The problem is that there are other people crossing the field at the same time. And maybe the owner is working the field or his people. So it wouldn't do for him to take this hidden box and tuck it under his arm and make off with it. He'll get caught. Here's his plan. He puts it back. He remembers where it is. And then he goes and finds the owner of the field and he negotiates a price, probably inflated, probably above its market value. In fact, it says he sells everything he has. Every last penny goes into buying that field so he can own the pearl of great price. Jesus tells that story and there's probably a couple of ways of looking at that story. You see, Jesus is so skillful when he weaves a tale, that he's able to tell us two things with one picture. One of the things that story tells us is, when you find Jesus Christ, do whatever you've got to do to know Him. If that means you have to adopt a life of extraordinary prayer, where just a little, now I lay me down to sleep every evening, is not cutting it. You pray that prayer, but you still don't really know Him then you adjust and you begin to spend 15 minutes in prayer and you'll find that that's not enough, not enough to know Him the way you want to know Him. And then it'll be longer and longer increments of time. And and then you'll be able to to notice your schedule, I'm spending time praying, more than I ever have before. And, And then some of the other things that you used to do that now you don't do because you're praying. They lose their luster. The magazines don't look so bright anymore. And the television looks trivial next to prayer. doesn't mean you're a Holy Joe. doesn't mean you're a goody two-shoes. It means you're getting to know Jesus Christ. You do whatever you've got to do. If it means you have to get up early because you've got to get up early to get the kids going, so you get up earlier to read His Word, you do that. If it means you stay up late if it means you set the alarm to wake up at 2.30 to spend a half hour in the Word, you do that too. You do whatever you've got to do because this is the pearl of great price to know Him. And it's worth everything. That's one way of looking at the story. The other way, and this is really tough for me to think about, is that Jesus is the one kicking through the field. And the pearl he found was me. And he says that is so valuable. I will give everything, my life, to own that pearl. Doesn't that blow your mind? That the God of the universe did that. And he did it for you and he did it for me. He's so skillful, he tells two stories there at once. But it reinforces what the Word had already said. I sought the Lord. I was looking for the Lord, but He found me. (laughs) I didn't find Him. He was on the job way ahead of me. I sought the Lord, He found me. So run hard after Jesus that you may know Him. Run hard after Jesus, that you may know Him. He knows whatever it is that you need. And so you need not seek Him because you have a need. He already knows. But let me tell you, whatever it is you need, He can meet it. Is it your sense of worth? Maybe somebody or several somebodies have trampled that in your life. And you feel like you're not worth much. He can take care of that. Maybe, maybe it's that you've had your life wrung out of you and you're just tapped out. He can take care of that. Maybe your health has been compromised. Maybe you're suffering some deep disappointments. Maybe, maybe you thought, at this point in my life, I really thought things would be different and better than the place I'm in right now. He can handle that too. Forgiveness, guilt, for what you've done and wish you had never done. He's more than able to handle that, to be clean again. He can do all that. That is all in the cross, you see. When he paid a debt he did not owe. It was because I owed a debt I could not pay. But he more than paid the debt for my healing, for my forgiveness, for my sense of self-worth. He more than paid a debt for any, any damage that has been done. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. He took care of it all. So go looking for Him. And at all costs, find Him. Find Him. Because He's everything. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.